John. The first verse is John 20, verse 14. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. We're going to move to 21, verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, and the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. Thanks so much, Jackie. Children ages three through second grade, you're dismissed to Children's Church. And as they're leaving, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13. We're going to be talking about in plain sight today. So Judy and I, after we graduated college, we moved to Florida and started, uh, Judy started teaching at the Christian school where her friend from grade school was teaching. And so at first, they, they were our only friends. Uh, we lived in an apartment, a uh, strip of apartments right close to where they were at. And, and so, uh, but as we continued to develop relationships with uh, different individuals there, we started hanging out with a couple who were both teachers the wife worked at the same school as Judy did, and the husband worked at another Christian school there in South Florida. <clears throat> and so in an effort to expand our friend base, we decided that we were going to have a get-together, and, and we were going to invite our different friends uh, that didn't know each other and bring them all together. And so uh, unfortunately, Judy and I, the people that we invited, weren't able to come to that get-together. But our other friends, um, they had a, that... Uh, they had it at their house. They hosted it at their house. They were able to have a husband and wife couple come that were both school teachers at the husband's school. So at this other school, not where Judy taught, but at where the husband of this, uh, this other family taught. And so as we, as we began to share information about our backgrounds, I was surprised to find out that I already knew this husband and wife. All the way down in Florida, we had worked together for three summers at a Bible conference in New Jersey as high school kids. <laughs> and here they were, down in Florida. They were in close proximity to us. We had no idea they were there. And so, you know, it was pretty amazing. Judy and I connected with them really, really well. I had already known them, but uh, Judy got to know them and, and connected so incredibly. They were our deep, we had such a deep, lasting relationship with them. They're still living in Florida. They're still, I think, both teaching, and he might be the administrator now of the school there. But it was just incredible to see how God kind of orchestrated that and put us together. They were there in plain sight, and we didn't even know it, right? <clears throat> so, I don't know about you, I enjoy playing with my grandkids. And one game that uh, my oldest granddaughter and I play when they, she comes over is hide-and-seek. And because she's only three, my hiding places are mostly in plain sight. It's in the corner, behind a chair, in her play tent, or other places where she can find me really easily, right? Well, she does the same thing. She hides in plain sight also, under the table. I don't do that one. Under the piano bench, can't fit there. <clears throat> On the stairs, in her play tent, and other places. And so while she finds me pretty quickly, I act like I don't know where she's hiding, Right? I go, and I'm like, where is, where is so-and-so? You know, where is she at? And, and uh, that produces a lot of laughter, uh, and which is easy then to find where she's hiding. But the longer we've played, the more I've started hiding in places that are not in plain sight. 
Well, they kind of are. I'll put a blanket over myself while I'm laying on the couch. And she eventually finds me. And again, it's a lot of, a lot of giggling, a lot of laughter. But How many of us have quote-unquote lost something only to realize that it's in plain sight? The reason that we can't see it is because it's not in the place that we normally put it, right? So it's right there on the counter. It's right there beside our bed. It's in the closet, but it's not in the same place that we've always put it. And so we've lost it. We can't find it. And we get so frustrated, we rush around all over the house trying to look for it. We start blaming family members. Guilty as charged this morning. We start blaming family members that they took it, right? You've taken it. No, we just didn't put it back where we normally put it. How many of you experienced losing your glasses only to find out that they're on the top of your head? Right? Have it, anybody? Or is it just me? <laughs> You're like, oh no. You walk around like, I can't find my glasses. Touch the top of your head. <laughs> and then you feel stupid, right? You're like, oh, I can't believe they're right there. So uh, there's a lot of things that are just in plain sight, right? Well, we're going to see today that Jesus was in plain sight, but two of his disciples did not recognize him at first. The readings that you heard this morning from Jackie had, what, one woman in the garden didn't recognize Jesus? His disciples uh, along the beach didn't recognize him? There was a reason for that. So they were not alone in this, because like I just mentioned earlier, Mary Magdalene was in the presence of Jesus and didn't recognize him. She thought he was the gardener. And these two disciples went uh, through three stages as it pertains to hope. First, their hope was ravaged. Secondly, their hope was, the hope was revealed. And finally, their hope was restored. And so what we learn from this passage today is this big idea that Jesus brings hope. And so as we just dwell on that big idea, would you just bow your heads with me as we commit it to the Lord in prayer? Lord, we come to you this morning anticipating incredible things that you're going to move by your Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of your people today. Lord, we thank you that you are here. Even though we can't physically see you, we know that you are present. Your word tells us that we're two or more gathered together, that you are here, so we know that you're here, and we're grateful for that today. Lord, we thank you, too, that you're at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us when we go through difficult times, Lord, when we feel discouraged, when we feel alone. We thank you that you are there, and you can provide hope for us today. And now, Lord, I pray that you would speak through your uh, vessel that's cracked and chipped. I pray that in spite of my failures, Lord God, would you work powerfully today. Would your people hear your voice and respond to you? And we just ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be first. And so we're going to look at uh, verses 13 to 16. And so look at that with me, if you would, in Luke chapter 24. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So when we look at this, if we look at verse 13, it says that same day. We have to look back to verse 1 to understand what, is, what this day is. It's the first day of the week. It's Sunday. 
It's also the same day that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, we don't know the hour that he rose from, uh, that he rose, but it was sometime before 6 a.m. because that's probably the time when the women went to the tomb with their spices and perfumes that they had prepared before the Sabbath. There were two disciples traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus, we're told here. They left sometime after the women and Peter and John had returned from the tomb and found it empty. It was probably sometime in the afternoon when they started their journey. And it says they traveled from Jerusalem to Emmaus. <clears throat> so that's about seven miles uh, a little north of Jerusalem, or west and a little north of Jerusalem. <clears throat> and since they were walking, it probably took them about two and a half hours to make the journey. Well, while they're journeying together, they're just having this conversation, right? They're discussing <clears throat> everything that had happened over the past week. So they're probably discussing when, what went wrong from the time of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem to his crucifixion and burial. Like, what happened there? They were probably trying to figure out what happened to Jesus' body since the tomb he was in was empty, and no one knew where his body was, including his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. Warren Wearsby says, We get the impression that these men were discouraged and disappointed because God did not do what they wanted him to do. They saw the glory of the kingdom, but they failed to understand the suffering. We know their demeanor was one of sadness. If you look down into verse 17, it says that their faces were downcast. And the outcome of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem was not what they had hoped for. Their hope was ravaged. They're like, this is not at all what we expected of the Messiah. Jesus was supposed to rule over them as king and remove the Roman rulers from among them, but now he's gone. Nobody even knows where his body's at. And so then the stranger starts walking with them together. And as they're walking along the road to Emmaus, this guy just starts walking along with them. They don't recognize him, but they're cordial enough to allow him to continue walking with them. Keener, in his commentary, says Jewish travelers would not consider it unusual for a stranger who is also a fellow Jew to join their small company walking from, for some distance, especially if they assume him to be a Passover pilgrim on his way home. So this, is an un, this isn't unusual. This isn't uncommon. We have the benefit of knowing that it's Jesus who's walking with them, but the two disciples were kept from recognizing him. I don't know how. I can't explain that to you today. You and I can miss Jesus in our lives because we're discouraged and angry that God didn't do for us what we wanted him to do. He didn't act in the way that we thought he should. He didn't answer our prayers in the way we thought he should answer our prayers, right? And this is part of our selfish, sinful nature that we think we know what's best for us, for our family, for our state, for our nation, and maybe even the world. That's just our pride. But you see, God is sovereign. That means that he has the right to rule and he rules rightly in our lives. God is the creator, so he knows everything about this world and the people living in it. God is omniscient, which means he's all-knowing, so he knows everything and he knows what's best for us. When, so when you're feeling discouraged and angry with God, you don't want to be around other believers, but they're the ones that can help you see that Jesus is right there with you in plain sight. They can help you to see that Jesus brings hope. So are you feeling discouraged and angry with God today? Here's just a few steps to take. First, just acknowledge your discouragement and anger with God. Tell Him how you're feeling. You're not going to make him upset or cause him to turn his back on you because you're feeling angry or discouraged. 
His word tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, it tells us this, that Jesus promised he'll never leave us or forsake us. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is our helper. He's right there with us. Now, the times that we feel like he's not around, many times it's because we've turned our back on him and walked away. It's because we're going away from him. It's not because he's left us. He's right there waiting for us when we return. A second thing, Steph, you can take today is, as a follower of Jesus Christ, recognize that he's right here with you. Just verbalize it. Hear yourself say the words, Jesus, thank you for being here. I know you're here with me today. Just verbalize it. And then the third thing you can do is surround yourself with fellow believers and allow them to encourage and comfort you. You see, we are here as a body of believers for you. Just reach out. We want to help. So maybe you're ready to take that first next step on the back of your communication card today. It says this, take time this afternoon to tell God why I'm discouraged or angry and that I know Jesus is with me. Just verbalize that today. Let him know. As Jesus, uh, oh, and then I want to encourage you to reach out to another brother or sister in Christ so that they can encourage and support and comfort you. Now, Jesus has a couple of questions for these guys. Look at verses 17 through the beginning of verse 19. This is what God's Word says. He asked them, Why, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. And so these two um, get this question asked by Jesus. Again, they still don't know that it's Jesus. He says, what are you discussing? Now, Jesus already knew what they were discussing, but this was his way of joining in the discussion. He's kind of interjecting himself into this conversation. He wanted to be included in the conversation so he could teach them some valuable truths. Here, uh, we are given the name of one of the disciples, Cleopas, and he obviously assumed this Jewish stranger walking with them had been in Jerusalem over Passover and should have known what was going on. How could you miss this? This was like the big news, right? Keener says, news spread quickly by word of mouth and public executions at a feast would be widely discussed. This isn't something that was hidden from all of Jerusalem. No, this, was the, this is what was being talked about. If social media had existed back then, you know what would have happened, right? It would have been all over the place, all over the internet, all over social media. Everybody would have known what was happening. And if the stranger was a Jew and had participated in a Passover feast, Jesus' trial and execution would have been the topic of discussion. But Jesus goes on and asks them another question. He says, what things? And Jesus asks the second question to encourage these two disciples to discuss what they knew about him. The Beacon Bible Commentary says he wanted them to give him enough information to permit him to teach his truths from their subject. He's like, I just want to know what they know. And then I want to teach them the truths of God's word. You know, when your child comes to you to tell you something that happened to them, but your spouse already told you the story, do you just turn them down and you're like, I already heard the story, I'm not interested. No, we don't do that, right? We get engaged with our child. We listen, and when they're excited about something, we get excited too, even though we already know the story, right? We know what's happened. And when it's a sad story, we, we put our arms around them, right? We hug them. We love on them. We comfort them. We cry together with them. 
And so Jesus is doing this, even though he knows everything that's about to happen, he's just doing this so that he can be there for them. He's patient with you as he listens to you. He is our great high priest. You know, he's going to just take care of us. As he knows everything that's going on in your life, he desires to hear from you. John Corson says, Jesus is saying to you today, talk to me about that trouble at work, about that feeling in your heart. I already know all about it, but I want to hear it from you. He wants us to just cry out to him. And he's patient with us as he listens. And he's, like I said, he's our great high priest and he sits at the right hand of God the Father interceding for you. And because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you can come boldly before God's throne and pour out your heart to him. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 tell us this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but have one uh, who who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you hear that today? Don't miss what he's saying there. The Hebrew writer is saying, he says, listen, we have this great high priest, and he, it's Jesus. He came from heaven to earth, was born as a baby, grew up to be a man. He lived a perfect life without sin. He was tempted in just the same ways that you're tempted today. All those things that you're tempted to do right now, they're running through your head. Jesus was tempted that way, and yet he was, did it without sinning. He didn't give in to that temptation, even though we choose to do that. That's why he's the only one who could die on the cross for us, because he was perfect without sin. And because of that, he sits at the right hand of the Father today, and we can find grace and mercy in those hard times, in the difficult times that we're going through right now because of what Jesus Christ did for us. So Jesus wants these two guys to open up and share what they know about him. We see their response then in the second half of verse 19 through verse 24. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day, and since all this took place, in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And so their response is pretty incredible here. Now we see the content of their conversation. It is Jesus of Nazareth. What did these two know about Jesus of Nazareth? First of all, they knew his name and where he was from. His name's Jesus, and he's from Nazareth. They knew he was a prophet, They knew he was mighty in deed and word. They knew he was uh, crucified. They knew he promised to redeem Israel, which is why they're confused. (laughs) They knew others had said he rose from the dead. So the verdict was still out for the Uh, from the perspective of these two disciples. They knew Jesus' body was not in the tomb, but they had yet to believe he rose from the dead. The testimony of the women uh, seeing the empty tomb and hearing the message given to them by two angels wasn't enough for these two. 
The testimony of Peter and John seeing the empty tomb with Jesus' grave clothes lying there undisturbed wasn't enough proof for these two. David Gusick says, Jesus wanted to know from them what he wants to know from you today. Can you believe without seeing with your own eyes? Can you believe based on the reliable eyewitness testimony of other people that Jesus is alive? You know, I heard a story from a young man who, when he was a young boy, wanted to know if God was real. As he lay in bed one night at his grandmother's house, he asked God to prove that he existed. Almost immediately, the blankets that were pulled up to his chest and not hanging over the edge of the bed were pulled down. He believed. (laughs) God revealed himself to him. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you have believed the reliable eyewitness testimony of other people, right? You haven't seen Jesus, correct? Maybe God's given you a vision of him. But you've believed the testimony of the apostles and the other biblical writers, some who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And finally, we see, or almost finally, we see Jesus' sermon here in verses 25 to 27. <clears throat> this is what he says. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus, they don't know it's him yet. He's talking to them. He calls them foolish, which just means that they are lacking in understanding. It's not a a negative uh, term like we might think of it today. It's, this, it's not the same word that's used in Matthew 5.22 that we are forbidden to say to our brother. <clears throat> but it's just, he's saying, you guys just don't have full understanding yet. It's for them, it's a heart issue and not a head issue. They knew what the prophets had said. That's probably uh, why they were so excited about Jesus in the first place. They didn't understand or hadn't understood all that the prophets had said. They only remembered the good parts. Warren Wearsby says they did not believe all that the prophets had written about the Messiah. That was the problem with most of the Jews in that day. They saw Messiah as a conquering redeemer, but they did not see him as a suffering savior. As they read the Old Testament, they saw the glory, but not the suffering, the crown, but not the cross. They were missing it. And so Jesus shared scripture with them. He asks them if they remembered that the prophets foretold that the Christ would have to suffer these things, and then enter his glory. Don't you wish you could have been there to hear Jesus Christ open up the scriptures from Moses to the prophets? That would have been amazing. Just to hear him open that up, that would have been probably the most incredible sermon you ever heard, right? It wouldn't come from me. (laughs) David Gusick says the ancient Greek word for expounded or explained has the idea of sticking close to the text. Why do you think Jesus stuck close to the text? Because he was the word made flesh, right? It was him. (laughs) It was all about him. He probably talked about these things. He talked about maybe the first promise of the Redeemer in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Maybe Abraham placing his son on the altar in Genesis 22 and how a ram was provided, the first Passover in Egypt that set the the Israelites free, the Levitical sacrifices that were required to cover over their sin but not to take their sin away. How about the tabernacle ceremonies, the Day of Atonement, the serpent in the wilderness that was a uh, foreshadowing of Jesus? 
If, if the Israelites looked at that serpent, they would be healed from the bite of the serpent. The suffering servant in Isaiah 53, the prophetic messages of Psalm 22 and 69. He shared with them all that Scripture said about him. So how did he do this? Did he have all these scrolls rolled up and hanging underneath his underarm? No. He knew the Scripture by heart. It was about him. John Corson says, sometimes you might think, I don't need to study the Word because I already studied it. I already know it. And he asks you, do you? Can you walk along the road and discuss Genesis chapters 37 to 50? How about Ezekiel 44? What about Luke chapter 21 to 24? How about Romans chapters 5 to 8? Until you're at that place, you need to be where the Bible is taught consistently. Warren Wearsby goes on and says, the key to understanding the Bible is to see Jesus Christ on every page. John Corson says something very similar to that. He says, no matter what kind of Bible teaching you do, Sunday school, youth worker, small group leader, etc., your job is to look for Jesus in every part of God's Word, to point people back to Him. It's all about Him. So as they're walking along the road, they're getting close to Emmaus, and we see that the, these two guys invite Jesus, or the stranger to stay with them look at verse 28 as they approached the village to which they were going jesus acted as if he were going farther but they urged him strongly stay with us for it's nearly evening the day is almost over so he went in to stay with them so when they're approaching emmaus jesus just acts like he's going to keep going and continuing his journey they have no idea where he's from the two disciples urge him strongly to stay with them for the night. And this was part of the culture of the day, to extend hospitality, hospitality, especially as night was getting close. Jesus will not force his way into your life. He's waiting for you to invite him in. He reveals himself to you through other people, his creation and life circumstances, and then he waits for you to respond. He does that in offering you salvation, <clears throat> in offering to be a part of his family, to be a child of God. He waits for you to recognize that you're a sinner. God provided the Ten Commandments not as a way to be made right with him, because we can't keep the Ten Commandments, but to show you that you needed someone to help you with your sin. Too often people say, well, I'm a good person, and Scripture, will, I'll just will tell you, it says no. And here's Why? Because all I have to do is look at the Ten Commandments, just a couple of them, and we realize that we're not good people. We're born with a desire to have our own way, to want our own way. Most of us have probably lied at some point in our lives. That's one of the Ten Commandments, don't lie. Some of us have probably taken something that doesn't belong to us, even if it's small. That's called stealing. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Some of us have used God's name as a cuss word. That's one of the Ten Commandments. And you can, we can keep going on and on and on, right? God's Word tells us that if we just break one of the Ten Commandments, as though we've broken all of them. So you see, we're not good people. I hate to break your bubble today. I'm not a good person either. That's why I need Jesus, right? God's Word tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't reach the perfection of God because we're born with a desire to have our own way, to be our own boss. We don't want anyone else to tell us what to do, how to act, what to say, how to think. God's word tells us, Paul's continuing to write to the Roman believers in chapter 6, verse 23, he says, 
for the wages of sin is death. So what we earn, what we deserve for our sin, is to be separated from God for all of eternity. See, it's not a physical death because we're all sinners, right? For the wages of sin is death, but it's physical. None of us would be here. <laughs> It'd be an empty building. But it's a spiritual separation from God. It's a spiritual death. Now, the second part of that verse is the great part. The first part's the sad part. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life is what we need here on earth to be able to obey God, and eternal life is the kind of life we need to be able to spend eternity with him in heaven someday. Now, we see some pretty incredible things. We see God's love in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. says this, but God demonstrates his love. He shows us his love in this. While we were still sinners, while we're still following our own way, being our own boss, he says that he sent Jesus to die for us. So God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's incredible love, right? He said, I know that you're not following me right now. I know that you don't want to be in a relationship with me. I know that you don't even like me. Some people don't even believe that I exist, right? And he says, I still love you even though that's all wrong. <laughs> and I'm waiting for you to turn to me and come to me. And so we see Jesus' sacrifice in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. It tells us this is how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This was foretold hundreds of years before that Jesus was going to do this. And then Jesus fulfilled that. So how Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and he came alive again in three days according to the scriptures. Christ fulfilled that perfectly. And then we see God's promise to us in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. I want to read it for you this morning. It says this, Yet to all who received him, that's Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. That's God's gift to us today. That's his promise to us. He says, if you just receive Jesus into your life today, if you repent of your sins and turn from those sins, and if you believe in Jesus, that he died, was buried, and came alive again to take your punishment for sin, you can become my child. And if we're God's child, guess where we get to live for eternity? With him in heaven. That's a great gift. It's a great promise to us. Maybe you're ready to take that second step today. It's on the back of your communication card, and that's to invite Jesus into my life by receiving him and believing in his name so I can become a child of God. That's just the first point, right? Their hope was ravaged. Jesus didn't do what they thought he was going to do. But here they were going to see hope revealed. Look at verses 30 to 32. This is what God's word says. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us? Isn't that incredible? We see Jesus' actions. He was sat at the table with them and did something that he had done at the Last Supper. He took bread, he gave thanks, he broke the bread, and he gave it to them. In that simple act, they recognized who he was. Their eyes were opened, 
and whatever had caused them not to recognize Jesus was removed. Their eyes were opened to who this stranger was that had been traveling with them. They had been sharing with Jesus about Jesus. They had been taught on the road by Jesus. And as soon as they recognized Jesus, he was gone. This resurrected body of Jesus was different than his human body. He was able to appear and disappear at will. He was able to move through locked doors. And so these disciples are so excited. Their hearts were greatly moved because as Jesus was teaching them about himself from Moses through the prophets, they were probably remembering all that they had learned from Jesus during his ministry here on earth. They were missing him and his presence with them. Little did they know he was right there with them. And finally today we see hope restored. Look at verses 33 to 36. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two uh, told what had happened on on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And so these guys left immediately, another two and a half hour hike, back to Jerusalem. They couldn't wait to tell the other disciples what had happened to them. And Jesus had already appeared to Simon or Peter. When they arrived, they had to wait to share their story because hope had already been restored in Jerusalem. Jesus had appeared to Simon, to Peter. The 11 and the others uh, with them were joyfully announcing and believing that Jesus had risen from the dead. And then they get their opportunity to share their experience. These two finally got that chance to share how Jesus had walked with them on the road to Emmaus. They shared about how they recognized him after he had broken the bread and given thanks for for it and gave it to them. And while everyone was rejoicing together and reveling in their restored hope, something incredible happened. Jesus appeared with them and encouraged them with, peace be with you. Warren Wearsby says, what a difference it would make in our church services if everybody who gathered came to tell about meeting the living Christ. If our services are quote-unquote dead, it's probably because we are not really walking with and listening to the living Savior. How true that is. So what we see from this today, you may be experiencing your hope being ravaged. You may feel discouraged and or angry with God, and those emotions are real, and they don't offend God. He just wants to hear them from you. He wants you to talk to him about what you're feeling. He wants you to know that Jesus is right there with you. This is hope revealed. After Jesus ascended to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to guide, illumine, and comfort you and me, and his plan was never to leave us alone without help or hope. He wants you to know that he is Uh, Place brothers and sisters in Christ alongside you to help you. This is how your hope can be restored. Satan wants you to think that you're alone without anyone to encourage you or help you through the discouragement or anger. But we're here for you. Jesus is with you. Your hope comes through Jesus Christ and him alone. Not a spouse, not a parent, not a child. It comes through Jesus Christ alone. And the first step in experiencing the hope found in Jesus Christ is to submit yourself to him and his authority. It's repenting of your sins, turning away from them and not looking back. It's recognizing and admitting your sin to God, believing in Jesus' perfect sacrifice for you, calling on God to be 
part to be a part of his family. And you know, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are witnesses to his resurrection power. While, we're, uh, while we were not there to see him after his resurrection, we have experienced his healing power in our lives. We have been set free from the bondage to sin and self. We have hope for the future resurrection of our bodies when Jesus Christ returns a second time. And we're called to share that freedom and hope with others. Doug, I didn't tell you, I'm going to skip that last slide. I'm not going to finish with that illustration this morning. Because I want to open up the altar today. As the worship team comes this morning, and as the ushers prepare to take up the tithes and offerings, I just want to share this with you. If you're feeling discouraged today and angry with God, please just come and tell Him. Just be honest with Him. Let Him know that you're struggling We'll be here to pray with you. We'll have some of our lay ministers that will come and pray with you. Or if you're here for the first time today and you're saying, I want to just give my life to Jesus completely. I, I understand today that I'm a sinner and that Jesus died for me and that out of God's great love, he sent Jesus even when I didn't want to be in a relationship with him. And I want to be a part of God's family today. You come too and we want to pray with you today. And so I'm going to just pray to, to close the message as the worship team comes. As they play, I just encourage you to come this morning. Whatever you need to deal with with God, would you just come, and we'll be here to be uh, a support and encouragement to you. Lord, we just thank you for this message this morning. We thank you that Jesus is our hope, that he brings hope because he was perfect without sin. He died on the cross to take our punishment for sin. And, and Lord, uh, we re rejoice in that fact today. We celebrate that today, that he is risen from the dead and is still alive today. That's what set him apart from all their, all their prophets, Lord God. All those other prophets that we've heard about in our, in our world have died and are still dead. But you are alive. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that's with us right now, moving throughout this place through hearts and minds. And Lord God, we ask that you would do your work. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.